Book Three, Chapter Ten of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Three, Hermit and Heretic, eighteen sixty to eighteen seventy, Chapter Ten. Verona and Oxford, eighteen sixty nine to eighteen seventy. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith. The main object of this journey was, however, not to study mythology, but to continue the revision of old estimates of architecture, and after seventeen years to look with a fresh eye at the subjects of stones of Venice. The churches and monuments of Verona had been less thoroughly studied than those of Venice, and now they were threatened with imminent restoration. On May the twenty-fifth, he wrote, "It is very strange that I have just been in time, after seventeen years' delay, to get the remainder of what I wanted from the red tomb of which my old drawing hangs in the passage, the Castle Barco monument. Tomorrow." They put up scaffold into retouch, and I doubt not spoil it for evermore. He succeeded in getting a delay of ten days to enable him to paint the tomb in its original state, but before he went home, it had its new white cap on and looked like a Venetian gentleman in a pantaloon's mask. He brought away one of the actual stones of the old roof. On June the third, he wrote, "I am getting on well with all my own work, and much pleased with some that Mister Bunny is doing for me. So that really, I expect to carry off a great deal of Verona. The only mischief of the place is being too rich. Stones, flowers, mountains—all equally asking one to look at them." A history to every foot of ground and a picture on every foot of wall, frescoes fading away in the neglected streets like the colours of the dauphin. As assistants in the enterprise of recording the monuments of Venice and Verona, and of recording them more fully and in a more interesting way than by photography, he took with him Arthur Burgess and John Bunny, his former pupils. Mr. Burgess was the subject of a memoir by Ruskin in the Century Guild Hobby Horse, April eighteen eighty-seven, appreciating his talents and lamenting his loss. Mr. Bunny, who had travelled with Ruskin in Switzerland in eighteen sixty-three and had lately lived near Florence, thenceforward settled in Venice, where he died in eighteen eighty-two after completing his great work, the St. Marks. Now in the Ruskin Museum at Sheffield, a memoir of him by Mr. Wedderburn appeared in the catalogue of the Venice Exhibition at the Fine Arts Society's Gallery in November eighteen eighty-two. At Venice, Ruskin had met his old friend Rawdon Brown and Count Gilberto Borromeo. Whom he visited at Milan on his way home with deep interest in the ruins and in the authentic bust of San Carlo, so closely resembling Ruskin himself, 
Another noteworthy encounter is recorded in a letter of May the fourth. As I was drawing in the square this morning, in a lovely, quiet Italian light, then came up the poet Longfellow with his little daughter, a girl of twelve or thirteen, with springy curled flaxen hair, curls or waves that wouldn't come out in damp. I mean. They stayed talking beside me some time. I don't think it was a very vain thought that came over me, that if a photograph could have been taken of the beautiful square of Verona in that soft light, with Longfellow and his daughter talking to me at my work, some people both in England and America would have liked copies of it. Readers of force will recognize an incident noted on the eighteenth of June. Yesterday, it being quite cool, I went for a walk, and as I came down from a rather quiet hillside, a mile or two out of town, I passed a house where the women were at work spinning the silk off the cocoons. There was a sort of whirring sound, as in an English mill. But at intervals they sang a long, sweet chant, all together, lasting about two minutes, then pausing a minute, and then beginning again. It was good and tender music, and a multitude of voices prevented any sense of failure, so that it was very lovely and sweet, and like the things that I mean to try to bring to pass. For he was already meditating on the thoughts that issued in the proposals of Saint George's Guild, and the daily letters of this summer are full of allusions to a scheme for a great social movement, as well as to his plans for the control of Alpine torrents and the better irrigation of their valleys. On the second of June, he wrote, "I see more and more clearly every day my power of showing how the Alpine torrents may be not subdued but educated. A torrent is just like a human creature, left to gain full strength in wantonness and rage. No power can any more redeem it, but watch the channels of every early impulse." And fence them, and your torrent becomes the gentlest and most blessing of servants. His mother was anxious for him to come home, being persuaded that he was overworking himself in the continued heat which his letters reported. But he was loath to leave Italy, in which he said his work for the future lay. He made two more visits to Venice to draw some of the sculptured details now quickly perishing, and to make studies of Tintoret and Carpaccio. Among other friends who met him, there was Mister Holman Hunt, with whom he went round his favourite Scuola di San Rocco, the first of July. Two days later, he wrote, "You will never believe it, but I have actually been trying to draw a baby." The baby which the priest is holding in the little copy of Tintoret by Edward Jones, which my father liked so much, over the basin stand in his bedroom. All the knowledge I have gained in these seventeen years only makes me more full of awe and wonder at Tintoret. But it is so sad, so sad. No one to care for him but me, and all going so fast to ruin. 
he has done that infant christ in about five minutes and i worked for two hours in vain and could not tell why in vain the mystery of his touch is so great final farewell was said to verona on the tenth of august for the homeward journey by the saint gothard and giesbach where he found the young friend of eighteen sixty six now near her end and soon where he met professor c e norton on the way he wrote rigano saturday the fourteenth of august eighteen sixty nine my dearest mother yesterday exactly three months from the day on which i entered verona to begin work i made a concluding sketch of the old broletto of como which i drew first for the seven lamps i know not how many years ago and left italy for this time having been entirely well and strong every day of my quarter of a year's sojourn there this morning before breakfast i was sitting for the first time before luini's crucifixion for all religious art qualities the greatest picture south of the alps or rather in europe and just after breakfast i got a telegram from my cousin george announcing that i am professor of art the first at the university of oxford which will give me as much power as i can well use and would have given pleasure to my poor father and therefore to me once it will make no difference in my general plans about travel etc i shall think quietly of it as i drive up towards st gothard to-day ever my dearest mother ever your loving son j ruskin six years earlier when being examined before the royal academy commission he had been asked has it ever struck you that it would be advantageous to art if there were at the universities professors of art who might give lectures and give instruction to young men who might desire to avail themselves of it as you have lectures on geology and botany to whom he had replied yes assuredly the want of interest on the part of the upper classes in art has been very much at the bottom of the abuses which have crept into all systems of education connected with it if the upper classes could only be interested in it by being led into it when young a great improvement might be looked for therefore i feel the expedience of such an addition to the education of our universities his interest in the first phase of university extension and his gifts of turners to oxford and cambridge had shown that he was ready to go out of his way to help in the cause he had promoted his former works on art and repetition as a critic pointed to him as the best qualified man in the country for such a post he had been asked by his oxford friends who were many and influential to stand for the professorship of poetry three years earlier there was no doubt that the election would be a popular one and creditable to the university on the other hand ruskin as professor would have a certain sanction for his teaching he believed the title and the salary of three hundred and fifty-eight pounds a year were hardly an object to him 
but the position as accredited lecturer and authorized instructor of youth opened up new vistas of usefulness new worlds of work to conquer and he accepted the invitation on august the tenth he was elected slade professor he returned home by the end of august to prepare himself for his new duties during the last period he had been giving on an average half a dozen lectures a year which amply filled his annual volume twelve lectures were required of the professor many another man would have read his twelve lectures and gone his way but he was not going to work in that perfunctory manner he undertook to revise his whole teaching to write for his hearers a completely new series of treatises on art beginning with first principles and broad generalizations and proceeding to the different departments of sculpture engraving landscape painting and so on then taking up the history of art an encyclopedic scheme he took this oxford work not as a substitute for other occupation exonerating him from further claims upon his energy and time nor as a by-play that could be slurred he tried to do it thoroughly and to do it in addition to the various work already in hand under which as it was he used to break down yearly after each climax of effort this autumn and winter with his first and most important cause in preparation he was still writing letters to the daily telegraph being begged by carlyle to come the sight of your face will be comfort says the poor old man and undertaking lectures at the royal artillery institution woolwich and at the royal institution london the woolwich lecture given on december the fourteenth was that added to later editions of the crown of wild olive under the title of the future of england the other february the fourth eighteen seventy on verona and its rivers involved not only a lecture on art and history and contemporary political economy but an exhibition of the drawings which he and his assistants had made during the preceding summer four days later he opened a new period in his career with his inaugural lecture in the sheldonian theatre at oxford end of book three chapter ten recording by cheyenne arrowsmith